The following discussions are a further look into Director Thomas W. Arlington and the tumultuous events of the final year of the Grant administration. This won't be an easy road to walk down, but I have faith that we will be stronger for following it to its conclusion. Through the Wind Door Last time on Through the Window, we had just finished discussing my complex feelings about the Amish and their brief part in the narrative as well as in the wider world. We now take you to our thoughts and feelings on Chapter 3 as a whole, already in progress. This chapter is a goldmine for seeing the various aspects of Thomas Arlington that is different from what we have seen so far in the Handbook Highlight. With Bishop Miller, we see a diplomat and some restrained humor. With Harry, we see him as a father. With Edison, we see irritation and steel. And there's even little subtle moments where, at one point, Arlington addresses Edison by his last name, and Edison calls him director. But to the other two, they address each other as Nicola and Tom, far more familiar, more trust going on there. And as we have established, or as will be further established uh, as the story goes on, trust is a resource, is a currency that Thomas is very careful in regards to doling it out to people. Mm. It's a way of establishing that what we saw of Thomas was a front. It's not that it was insincere in Cartography's handbook. He believed in what he put out there in the handbook. But there is more to Thomas, more humanizing characteristics, more unseen influences, positive ones, and pressure dissuading ones that we were not privy to. And in that book, he was addressing an audience that cannot respond here we see how he is playing off of other people whether it's in debate or sincere appreciation yeah and i think what it's the way he talks to tesla is such a great sort of moment where it shows the discrepancy between edison who kind of needs to be kept in check mm. and tesla who he values and trusts because of the kindness he has shown his daughter. And I think mm. that says all you need to know about Thomas, that as much as he is a man very firmly driven to a goal, and it's one that requires so much attention and work towards it, he is not someone who ignores his family. They mm. that He does prioritise them very highly, and in a way that emphasises their well-being and that means that he is obviously going to trust more people that also prioritize his family exactly especially like, like, 
like Frank is going to be and do over the course of this book. Exactly. In point of fact, in this chapter, it's very heartening to see Thomas actually connect with Frank. Frank mm. is generally very easy to like, as we have already seen. Mm. But as we have also mentioned, Arlington has very understandable inhibitions on trusting anyone. Not mm-hmm. just white people, you know, the the symbols of the people that enslaved his mother and harmed her and mm-hmm. enslaved black people in general. Thomas does have the capacity to trust people that are not the same skin tone as him. And as we're going to see later on, he ends up having a very significant relationship with President Grant, as, as well as other people down the line. But nevertheless, the fact that the two of them, Frank and Thomas, develop an immediate accord is immensely gratifying. Mm. And part of that is obviously based around what the two of them share, which begins here, but develops more and more as Thomas learns some of the particulars about Frank's relationship to Annie and how that mirrors in some respect his relationship to his wife. There are, in fact, other points of connection, but because at least one of them is a plot element that is not revealed until Steamheart, I'm going to wait to talk about it till it comes up. The important thing is that Thomas likely does know about Frank's past, and it may well be part of the reason why he was picked for this posting. Everything we know about Thomas so far, including the insight that he will apparently die before the end of this book, suggests that he is a man beset by enemies and those who hate him and wish him harm. Not only can you see that he finds it difficult to trust people, you can see he has plenty of good reasons to. To see Frank and Arlington develop a rapport is reassuring, especially because Frank, up to this point, from James to Annie to Harry, has been an immensely supportive character. He's not just someone who is like easy to get along with. He repeatedly supports others. Mm -hmm. You have no doubt that he's exactly what Thomas needs when he can count on so little and so few. Yeah. Frank's a good egg. He he is a good egg. Let's hope nothing bad ever happens to him. Uh... Um, I could have made many of my spoiler references much more overt, but I held back. Yeah, okay. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. Just a little bit of uh, dark humor. Mm -hmm. Uh, You had to laugh, hiding real tears. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So the second half of this chapter is part of that connection with Frank by divulging the history and the real world stuff in regards to Thomas doing his best to raise a neuroatypical child in Harry. And he feels the need to dive deep in order to explain Harry to Frank 
even though it's clear from chapter two that Frank already kind of gets it, even without the necessary context. But because Thomas is placing Frank into such a position of trust, he feels it's necessary to give Frank the complete context mm. so that he can be better prepared for what's going forward. And that's great because it gives us, the audience, the necessary context. Completely. Um, so that we are prepared for more of Harry as the story progresses, because not quite a spoiler, she's going to be a major protagonist going forward. She's such a protagonist going forward. <laughs> she's like, it's an expansive list, but she's one of our favorite characters. Mm -hmm. And yes, I said that without consulting Greg and with full confidence that it is nevertheless true. Yeah, absolutely. I should backfill a little bit here that just because this is an excuse for exposition to the audience, it is actually probably a good idea for Thomas to give this context to Frank anyway. It not only helps build rapport between the two of them, encouraging Frank's natural empathy, but if Frank is going to bodyguard the Arlingtons, then he needs to have a clear idea of the scope of Harry's issue so that he can respond appropriately in moments of crisis. You do the same for a caretaker or a teacher, ideally, in order to create a safe space for your child, and decrease the likelihood for miscommunication. Frank is more than that, so that context is important in case there isn't someone else around that can respond to the manifestations of her neurodivergence better. Getting back to the subject at hand, the significance of this conversation is not just practical or even necessary in order for Thomas to adequately protect Harry. It's the first opportunity the audience has to see Thomas Arlington as vulnerable, something we've only seen before in more controlled circumstances. There is a qualitative difference in how he talks about his past in the handbook versus how he talks about Harry in Chapter 3. Thomas has already decided on some level that he can trust Frank with this information, even if, perhaps, the final decision has not yet been made in regards to giving Frank the position he has in mind for the Major. So through this moment, we learn more about Harry, Frank, and Thomas, and it's an opportunity for Thomas to assess Frank by seeing how he responds to this information, this level of trust. Thomas points out that Frank is very diplomatic, and diplomacy can sometimes get in the way of really understanding how someone feels about a subject. On top of that, at the very end, there is some speculation that does not quite break the fourth wall, as Thomas openly ponders a world in which history played out differently, and the coming of the Wendigo did not afford him the same opportunities to find a place for Harry, where her incredible brain could be of use, in spite of her neurodivergence. The sadness of the idea that Harry likely wouldn't have had opportunities or resources to flourish and contribute so much to the world if the world hadn't changed in the face of the Wendigo, read our world, mm. that is softened somewhat by what's at the heart of this story of Harry's past and Thomas's experiences raising her. 
in frightening circumstances and great adversity, it's important to nurture intellect and aptitude. Harry's condition is a lot for a parent to wrap their head around, for many people to wrap their head around, particularly in the 19th century. And her act of taking apart the clock in the Arlington's household is startling and frightening. Thomas admits that he was frightened, but Thomas makes a conscious effort to fight his immediate emotional response and calmly ask if Harry can put it back together. Ensuring that Harry would have everything she'd need to nurture these talents is immensely difficult, whether it's because of their status as a black family in Washington, or because of the societal turmoil following the outbreak of the Wendigo. All of these are obstacles, obstacles that seem insurmountable, with no achievable solution to fix them. And they are indescribably frightening because of that. But persistence and not just patience, but a kind patience is what has got them this far with Harry. And as a result of our time with her and her father, you not only want her to have the means to continue thriving as an inventor, you want her to be happy and to show that patience and know that this person is the most brilliant person in the room and that these moments where she goes into a trance or has to step away for a moment, that that's all part of her, mm. but it's not all of her. I feel like when I release this episode, um, I'm going to go on to include that one particular bit from Into the Spider-Verse, where Miles's father talks about the spark that he sees inside Miles. Look, I know I don't always do what you need me to do or say what you need me to say, but I'm... I see this, this spark in you. It, it's amazing. It's why I push you, but it's yours. Whatever you choose to do with it, you'll be great. That circumstance is a little bit different. Uh, Miles is not a neurodivergent person like a, a neuroatypical person like uh, Harry is, but it, it's that same kind of feeling in terms of being given opportunities and the importance that a parent feels in particular in terms of nurturing those opportunities to leave the world better for them but also make it possible for them to make the world better than it was for their parents and everything like that. And capping all of that off is one of the final lines of this chapter. Actually, no, it's not one of the final lines of this chapter, but it is one of the most important lines of this chapter. Communication, son. It's going to be our salvation. That's buried in offhand commentary. But that is one of the primary tenets of New Century. <laughs> yeah, if if Carmen Santos's account in Cartographer's Handbook and Tabitha's business hopes and Abigail praising them in secret rooms and, well, all of Tiger's Eye 
didn't clue us in already, Thomas carves this central principle in stone right here. Mm -hmm. It's present in Thomas doing his best to communicate with Frank. It's in Thomas's attempt to figure out how to best communicate with his child and how to facilitate her communication with the rest of the world because he will not always necessarily be there as you know as befits a parent to help their child with all the problems that they're going to face instead they have to give the best advice to prepare them for interacting with the world on their own terms and as you were speaking a realization i had is that that is really important because we already know that Thomas is going to die at the end of this book. Yeah. <laughs> Not to put a too fine point on it, but yeah. 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 The, it's so important that she is able to, like, to stand on her own two feet. And, um, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just something that I think Thomas just, Everything there is exactly what you want a parent to be. Mm -hmm. well, even though you can, or at least in that moment, he has flaws and faults, things that do frighten him about what his daughter did at this early age mm -hmm. and things that he still is grappling with and doesn't really understand about her. But I think that what you want a parent to be to their child is someone who, even if they don't fully understand them, nevertheless tries to get them everything they need so that they can be the best version that, of themselves that they can be and to prevent those alternate realities where they didn't get yeah. everything that they deserved and needed. And I want to move on, but not before saying that you mentioned that it's more difficult for Thomas to understand and to help Harry in the 19th century. I would argue that in the 21st century, we're still still struggling. not great. No, still we're not great. We're still struggling with mm. helping neurodiverse personalities particularly children, even if that if the awareness of neurodiversity is more prevalent now and we have better vocabulary to talk about these things, having the vocabulary and having the emotional wherewithal are two very different things. Mm. Helping a child, having a child, nurturing a child, is difficult under the best of circumstances when their reactions to things are not things that you are necessarily prepared for. It only makes things more difficult. I don't remember how much I've talked about my own experience with my father over the course of the show. And I also don't want to chew over old soup, but the relationship between parent and child, particularly fathers and sons or daughters is one that appears again and again in New Century. 
And when I think about the enormous responsibility that comes with having a child, I cannot help but think about my own experience. My father, growing up in a Mexican Catholic household, rebelled and went to America to forge his own life. He had a complex relationship with his father, one that was eventually mended once both were adults. But he very much didn't want to make the mistakes with me that he had experienced with his father. He did his best, and he is a good man, and a good father. That didn't mean that he made no mistakes, or that in attempting to do right by me, there weren't unintended consequences. I am grateful for the opportunities he made available to me, for the advice he gave, and for the eventual acceptance and sometimes even understanding that he was able to come to in regards to our differences. But the experience that I took away from it all, and a fairly comprehensive understanding of who I am as a person, resulted in me never wanting to be a parent myself. Because I do not have confidence in my ability to protect a child from the consequences of living with me. I was a wanted child, a loved child, but merely wanting to be a parent is not enough. Especially in this modern era, you have to be willing to put in the work. The hard, hard work. And Thomas, for any flaws, is such a parent. But we're going to leave that there. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move this on to... not the last time we'll talk about Harry, thankfully. No, no, exactly. Mm. Far from have... the last time. <laughs> let's move on to our final main narrator, Sarah Arlington. The other half to Thomas, who we are going to learn a lot more in terms of the role that she has had in also shaping the current events of the reunified states of america we get a sense of what she contributes almost immediately first in the previous chapter with her banter with thomas and then as she is recording her thoughts in her journal entry as being the framing of chapter four she is watchful to frank's reactions to using mundane craft as transportation after the wonders of the craft in the hangar. And then this is followed by the three-way conversation as regards alcohol, showcasing some of the dynamics between Sarah and Thomas and the potential way that Frank can contribute to that, provided Thomas will listen to what he has to say. That whole conversation is engaging and is heartwarming as fuck. Mm-hmm. It's funny how it works out this way, because I say this next thing, and I mean all the multiple meanings and interpretations of this. I love Sarah so goddamn much. (laughs) Well played, sir! Yes, well played! It's not like she's not in the room or anything like that. I would... She, for all I know, (laughs) is conked out on the sofa. I would say this if she was in the other room. I would say it anywhere. But anyway... I do love Sarah Arlington in this story. She is, as you say, she emerges and 
you immediately get a sense of her importance, not just to the rest of this story, but to the RSA and to Thomas specifically. And Sarah brings out a side of Thomas that is plain to see in herself as well. They both have a delight in the company of insightful people and they hunger for constructive conversation that engages fully with weighty topics, challenging every assumption made by each person present in order to consider them from all angles. Not like when, that's something we wouldn't have any experience with ourselves. We we have no idea what that's like. And <laughs> so I do I do think that that moment in the episode is one of those moments of just like author surrogate like just inclusion of yeah no like this is one of the coolest things to be able to do is to mm-hmm. like talk this through with people but i also heartily agree with it yeah when sarah appears she emerges as this missing piece to what thomas is trying to accomplish even if you didn't realize there was something missing yet it's like it's like of course someone like this has been working on all of this too She's the embodiment of everything hopeful and aspirational that you saw in the handbook, while still eminently practical, with plenty of suggestions for ways to implement the positive change she wants to make. I was going to say, she is, you know what they say, and I think it's a term that even comes up in Arlington as well. We immediately see that she is Thomas Arlington's better half, so to speak but that also she complements his personality and mm-hmm. helps diffuse some of the potentially more problematic aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, we already see the existing dynamic between her and Thomas, and as I mentioned already, the way that Frank can complement that as well, being a third point of experience and opinion that Sarah can help Thomas be open to basically Mm -hmm. Um, Frank has always been very diplomatic or at the very least has a good sense of what to say and when to say it overall Mm -hmm. but the presence of Sarah still greases the skids so to speak Mm -hmm. in terms of encouraging the free flow of information. Mm. And that it first meeting, it actually throws him because she has that much presence. She's mm-hmm. just someone who exudes this feeling of reassurance, but not just in that sort of very stereotypical, like feminine support only like has one role. She clearly occupies so many different roles and the way the writing handles not just the way other characters interact with her but her own dialogue and narration there is a clear understanding of the strength of character to someone like this who is able to provide so much of not just reassurance but just ideas and challenges and all of this and so when thomas is testing frank he froze the apple basically 
as soon as Sarah arrives. And I almost wonder if he sort of knows, yeah, she has this effect on people and mm. just sort of uh, does this, uses that moment of opportunity to test Frank of, I'm not going to tell you when I'm throwing the apples. Like, come on. I mean, it's very much a moment of that part from The Matrix where Morpheus is asking Neo, are you listening mm. to me or are you paying attention to the woman in the red dress? Mm. <laughs> mm. But but much more sort of like in a more respectful way, I suppose. Yeah, but... <laughs> not, not nearly as objectifying, which mm. it makes sense because the woman in the red dress is not actually a person. It is literally something that was put into the program in order to test Neo, whereas mm. Sarah is a real person deserving of respect mm. and should not be objectified in the slightest. Mm. But also, Frank's reaction to her isn't just about the way she looks. As you say, it's about her presence as a person mm. and how Frank picks up on that. New Century has this strength to its writing that I think a lot of characters are carefully considered before their first scene, essentially. It's not just... Mm -hmm. There are a few characters I can think of where their personality or where they end up does not come through somewhat through their first appearance. And so it means that whenever you have a new character who's going to be someone who like will be recurring and has a presence in the story, what their presence feels like just instantly comes across, which I think is very difficult line to tread. And the fact that this can be achieved both in audio drama speaks testament to the voice actors, but also in writing in the books as like this year, Greg and I have had plenty of practice of being introduced to new characters mm. in text format. And yet we have a strong connection to a lot of characters who we either haven't heard voices of or have only heard their voice, quote unquote, very recently. Mm -hmm. Sarah absolutely gets that. She, Her first appearance and mention comes here and it's as if she's been here the whole time. Also, it's Maureen's voice, who we have already established has an amazing fucking vocal presence. Mm. Even if if you put the two back to back, thanks mm. to the voice modulation of Tiger's Eye, you wouldn't necessarily realize mm. that it's her voice doing Sarah Arlington, the same voice that was narrating all of Tiger's Eye and everything like that. But mm. I still have to mention that. It, it was even something that came up in our interview with her that mm. she was very likely specifically picked for this role because of what her vocal talents bring to the kind of character that Sarah Arlington needs to be for this story. Mm. In the larger sense, as we've talked about this new dynamic between Thomas and Sarah and Frank, and the showcasing of all of their personalities in terms of this three-way interaction, one of the intriguing things that's revealed as a part of their conversation is that even though Thomas was more than happy to offer Frank a position of trust and access, 
following up on that, following up on that theory with practice. Theory and practice keeps coming into the story here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> actually granting all of the aspects of that access does not come naturally to him. He has to fight to overcome his natural tendencies, and Sarah is there assisting with that. Mm. But on top of that, it also helps that he slowly comes to a greater understanding that Frank's desire is only to be of use and not to cause harm, even small harm, like when the conversation of where does your name come from? You know, he has mm -hmm. a curiosity that he wants to say it there, but mm. when it seems like Thomas is potentially going to stonewall him through the cadence in his voice, Frank is immediately like, you know what? Okay, I'm going to back off here uh, because mm. I don't want to cause offense. And maybe that act is part of what allows Thomas to open up about mm. that part of his life as well. It, it's one of those things that feels like uh, Frank is asking not because he is sort of practicing a demand that he has a right to know. Mm -hmm. It's not that. What it is, is that he wants to know the man, Thomas Arlington, better, especially because he knows enough about him to know that that name would have been picked with like a lot of reasoning behind it. Mm -hmm. So there's a sincerity behind the question, but part of that means that there's a respect to him as a person, which means that if he ain't in a mood to tell him, he... He doesn't need to be told. It, it's, it's nothing he needs to know, but he is still trying to establish a rapport mm, with Thomas. Mm, um, not just because that's potentially part of who he is, but because it's going to help him do his job better. Yeah. To establish yeah. that rapport, to establish that trust. Mm. And as you yourself wrote in response something that connects many of the heroes in New Century is the desire to be of use. Mm. And so therefore that's a bit of a connecting through line that Thomas is able to respect and what probably makes some of the difference in regards to that. Mm. And the fact that Thomas is sort of in some versions of your different readers' reading order, the first voice of New mm. Century and the voice behind this book that acts as a template for like what we want to achieve going forward, the fact that that is very much his guiding philosophy is kind of suggesting that we are going in this direction, that there is a movement happening here and it is shaped by people who are guided not by a means of bettering their own position, but by the idea that they want to be of use. And that is, by definition, a thing that is in service of others rather than the self. It is mm. selfless rather than selfish. Yes. Yeah. Very, very important. Mm. Um, and it's not that the self doesn't come into that at all, because it's often about this sort of group effort to survive and to do the best but as you say the idea of doing something that can be for the good of all 
without putting yourself in there, but thinking of others, is the difference between the selfish and the selfless. Mm, mm, mm. Reflecting back, not just on Chapter 4, but all the interactions with Thomas and Frank and what we have read so far, I have to wonder a little bit about how much that conflict in the two carriage rides was happenstance, and how much of it was somewhat staged. I don't think at all that Thomas and Sarah were putting on an act for Frank at any point of it. But there is a complex juggling mental act taking place when I consider what I know of Thomas as a whole, what these chapters specifically might reveal to the audience, and therefore what assertions we can potentially make for our audience without feeling like we're spoiling anything. It's always a trick for Toby and I to talk about things without spoilers, but now that I have refreshed my memory of what we talked about originally, let me posit a thought exercise for you, dear listeners. In our original conversation, Toby and I asserted that Thomas might have issues with being completely open, even to Frank. And that assertion isn't necessarily wrong, either. After all, we have a lot of story to potentially see play out. But also take into consideration that Thomas both wrote a fairly raw story about his life that he put into the handbook, and we'll talk more about that next episode, but he went into a lot of personal detail about Harry in the chapter previous. Therefore, we do know that Thomas has the capacity to be open about his life. Therefore, one might ask this question. Why is the source of his name such a potential sticking point? The answer might very well be during that first conversation about alcohol. Thomas ends it by talking about how he wants people to bring their A-game in conversation. Sarah says that Thomas likes it when smart people challenge him. Therefore, that entire second conversation at the end might be Thomas testing Frank. The stakes are fairly low, considering Thomas is already ready to reveal his past to the world. But maybe Thomas wants to see what kind of argument Frank would make, how far he would push it, and how he would respond to subtlety in communication, such as the idea that Thomas might tell Frank to go on, and yet vocally imply that Frank could be stepping in it. As we'll get into down the road, Thomas is the kind of person that would test people. Constantly. And with good reason. As with everything in New Century, there are layers beneath the surface. And one of the most enjoyable things about Through the Windor is being able to bounce off Toby and unpack these layers. Even if, sometimes, realizations come after the fact. Or, ultimately, we don't always remember to cover everything we might want to. But fortunately, all of this will be fodder as more layers are revealed in the next four chapters and beyond. Before we end for the evening, the, the one last thing that I really liked about chapter four mm-hmm. um, that came up when I, as I was preparing the outline for this conversation was the return of reusing characters wherever possible, something mm-hmm. that Alex really likes to do, not just mm. for the sake of his own narrative, but for the sake of allowing voice actors to return to previous roles. Lawton Sadler makes mm. a very agreeable return 
once more making our little world familiar and warmer by bringing back a friendly face, mm. showing off once more the caliber of the agents Arlington wants working for him. Mm. And, I mean, it's Spencer. Why would we not want more Spencer? Right? Yeah. <laughs> and... This is actually one of the first opportunities for the audience, us included, to hear Lawton Sadler and Frank in the same story. I don't think that I realized back when I first listened to Arlington that Sadler and Butler were both voiced by Spencer Lieb. Listening to them now, the voices are similar, but only because I'm actually listening for it. Sadler's voice gives more of an impression of youth as his voice tends to go up at the end of every word, every sentence, where Butler's voice goes down, giving an impression more of a veteran. There's also a slightly different hitch in how they do their southern accents. Really, this is just an opportunity to say that as much as Spencer downplays his ability to voice different characters, at the very least, to my ears, there is no question that Sadler and Butler are distinct, and that hearing the similarities takes effort, rather than being as stark as he feels they are. It's indicative of not only Alex's approach to getting plenty of use out of each member of New Century's ever-expanding cast, but the RSA's recognition of those in its service. As I mentioned way back at near the beginning of our show, this is an institution that values individuals, commends them, and ensures that their talents can be put in a place where they can be of the most use. Like we said, it's people want to be where they can be of the most use. It's not this military organization that wants all of its officers to be faceless and stripped of all individuality. Yeah. But, but, but it's more complicated. Yeah, it, it and, is. And, and that's a very sort of optimistic view of what I hope is wanting to be achieved here. Once more, theory and practice. Um, theory and practice. And that's where I think that's the best note that we could possibly end on for uh, this conversation. Is <laughs> the three words that can sum up this entire story. <laughs> Theory and practice. I mean, I don't know about some of this story in particular, but just like we mentioned earlier about the importance of communication as being one of the central themes mm. and unity as being one of the central themes, theory and practice isn't necessarily one of the central themes, but it's definitely a concept that gets a lot of work out in mm-hmm. regards to certain stories in New Century. So, this has been great. I think we just keep getting better and better as we get better at doing our jobs. And this is the best possible way for us to start off um, talking about this book that Mm. is going to get more difficult as we go on. Oh, yeah. There's there's many manticles to fight. Mm. Yeah. So, thank you, listeners, for coming with us on this. Uh, newest journey through the Windor. We've been talking for quite a while, so this could be two episodes, this could be three episodes, we'll see. But in the meantime, I'm going to be preparing an outline for the next four chapters. 
very likely before that even happens, you are going to hear me and Maureen talk about some other stuff in regards to, in regards to new century and larger themes. And I is I mean the the yay aside, I already kind of know that Toby is going to be very excited about that because that means for the first time he is going to get to peruse a new episode of Through the Window uh, to make sure that it, it it all sounds very nice before release that he himself has not participated in before. So he literally gets to be the first person to listen to new new century content yeah budge over listeners i need to uh, i need to say yeah this is oh this is exciting i am <laughs> very excited <laughs> well thank you toby as always uh, thank you. your your voice your voice and a number of other voices are the ray of sunshine and the the commentary and the intelligence that just makes my day better in general and i think makes potentially everyone's day better by uh listening to two intelligent people play off each other and talk about the kinds of stuff that gets us going i am going to be fascinated to follow up with you when you finally dig deeper into back in time and space. Yeah. <laughs> and for the rest of you, we'll see you on the next trip through the wind door. Take care. And that's the end of our coverage of chapters one through four. This could have been two episodes, perhaps, as I had forgotten there was a bunch of stuff in our Skype session that had to be edited out like momentary breaks in our recording. It would have required a different spacing to have a good end to conversations and or ideas, but I think I'm just as happy that the spacing worked out for three, even if that meant shorter episodes than usual. It also gives us a little bit more room to work with, as scheduling recording times, even with me and Maureen, has been a little complicated due to personal events of my own, personal events of hers, as well as all the stuff that Toby and Sarah are getting into. After the outro, there will be more content to pad this one out a bit, which as always I hope will be enlightening, entertaining, or both. As mentioned from the end of last episode, I am not going to do a bit about traveling through time to hype up the latest Phase 2 book. It would be fun but would likely require more preparation than your average editorial insert takes. And as always, I would worry about inadvertently spoiling back in time and space. And I definitely don't want to do that. Alex would say that the best stories cannot be spoiled, as if you tell a story right, learning about what is to come enhances the experience through the anticipation. But there are people out there that enjoy that first surprise, and I don't want to deny that. It's not for me, after all, to tell anybody how to enjoy a story. And Alex already put so much effort into not giving away any elements of the book before release, so I want to hold to that code, and give everyone else the chance that I had, 
going into the story for the first time and letting it wash over me. But I did want the outro for today to be thematic, and so I picked out a work from nobody's favorite band, Nickelback. I myself was never a huge fan of this band, but I listened to their second album a lot. And even as some of their work doesn't feel like it's aged well with my experience, this particular song still stands the test of time. So until next time, this is the Hunger Dunger Dang voice of Chad Kroger with If Everyone Cared. Underneath the trees, we watch the sky, confusing stars, the satellites. I never dreamed that you'd be mine, but here we are, we're here tonight. Sing it, man, I, I'm alive, I'm alive. Sing it.
you know how I very often trail off, or mm. even you trail off, as we're trying to figure out I never what to say next. Do that. God damn it, Toby. Uh, Apple's doing a lot better, by the way. Uh, oh, he, thank goodness. Thank you. Yes, yes. Um, he has been taking his medication. He's been loving it. It means he gets a little bit of uh, boiled <laughs> egg each day. The, we'll have to send you video of not just that with him having egg mm -hmm. because it, it, it's un unlike anything else. As soon as a lot of the time, you'll often just put food out if you want him to have something like cucumber and you can trust that at one point or another, he'll get it. You mm. put a bit of like hard boiled egg, not, nothing else to it, just and it's egg white, so it's nothing like in the yolk. He will instantly come out of his little house and he doesn't just pick it up and grab it. He'll mm. leap for it, he'll scrabble for it mm. and just sort of tear into it like it's a cut extra of Jurassic Park. Mm. It's like, it's adorable. But if you were that egg, it, it, it would be terrifying, I tell mm. you, sir. Terrifying. <laughs> and Do you not it, want to be an egg around Apple? No. And it's, an, it's odd sentences like that that I live for, Greg. Hamsters, in our experience, aren't the most vocal creatures. They'll just sort of go about their business pretty okay without much, like, expressions or, like, things like that. But, I mean, guinea pigs are a lot more different. They will be very noisy, and uh, when they want your attention, they will mm -hmm. uh, go for it. But uh, last night, we heard Apple making this sort of... Uh, chirping noise, and did we take it on my video or yours? Uh, Sarah is uh, here, she is wandering in and out uh, between different rooms, but um, I thought I would, at the very least, especially because we're in a video format now, mm -hmm. show you uh, how he was. But long story short, we were a little concerned because he was doing it for a little while, and you think, like, no, he hasn't done this before, I hope it's all good, but. It can be sometimes when they're content. Sometimes it can be if they're in pain, which is obviously something you want to avoid. But he was acting completely normal, and he stopped doing it after a little while, and he has been himself all the time. So this is uh, the video, yeah. but, but I shall um, play this on loud next to the microphone and see if you can hear it. <laughs> I will send you the file so that this can be yes, in the podcast I, I, if I, uh, it I, doesn't I, come through. <laughs> it, it sounds wonderful. Just in case it wasn't obvious, some of those high-pitched squeals a moment ago were me responding to the video sounds because I have no shame. As proof, here is me responding to the video itself, which I hope to include a link to in the show notes. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Moving from hand to hand. Yes, he does that a lot. But the other thing that I will say um, is that after last night, mm -hmm. there there is only one piece of music that I can think of mentioning uh, prior to us recording on Arlington today, and I'm pretty sure you know what it is, don't you? I'm on the first chapter, um, and that was right before I went to sleep. I 
it, unless it's Huey Lewis and the Machine, uh, like, tell me, doctor, gotta get back in time. No, no, uh, the power of love. It, it, you know, you would absolutely be right. But it's everybody, yeah, <laughs> yeah. rock your body, back streets, yeah. back, all right. No. <laughs> all right. No, no, it's... <laughs> there, there are two reasons that I bring up. First of all, it's just the idea of you and me being back in the driver's seat, talking about something new, getting something recorded to paper. It's just, you know, it's just you and me back together. All of um, that. But also, uh, by the same token... If there is one thing that I can say to you to help prepare you for what is to come with back in time and space, uh, it is going to be prepare to have your expectations subverted because you will not be prepared for this novel on any fucking level. It was already like I have like the first chapter has surprised me and impressed mm -hmm. me. Our minds work similarly in some regard, mm -hmm. um, but I will every now and then need to take a moment in order to ponder something before necessarily being able to move on. That kind of depends on whether something is engaging me emotionally rather than mm. intellectually or whatever. Some of the intellectual stuff in here is pretty heavy. Some of the emotional stuff in here is even heavier in places. Are you saying that's heavy, Doug? <laughs> God damn it! Why is everything so heavy? Is there something wrong with the Earth's gravitational pull? <laughs> and some of this conversation is obviously not going to be in the outtakes, because I do not want to spoil anything. No. Or the back-in-time-and-space stuff has to be quarantined to that yeah. conversation. You know what we're going to do with this? We're going to take all of this, put it in a box, and then put that box in another box, and then we'll mail that box to Alex. <laughs> and he can smash it with a hammer, or he can enjoy to his pleasure. But <laughs> Like, I'm pretty sure he'll probably actually want to listen to all of this before taking a hammer to it and making sure that it doesn't fall into the wrong hands. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> we have sent this file to top men. This is um, this is so much new century because we had a new book that has released this weekend. We are starting a new book. I am listening to, and I'm about 60 minutes through, by the way, your edit of the finale to Cartographer's Handbook. And also a new Stone Spring Maidens episode is out. So we are having to think fourth dimensionally. Fifth-dimensionally. Fifth-dimensionally. <laughs> this, this is Lego Movie 2 levels of multi-layered, interdimensional analogy and meta-storytelling. And I'm waving my arms around a lot, and uh, it is at this point that I remember that usually I don't have the camera on, and Greg can see what a cartoon I really am. <laughs> it's okay. I end up talking with my hands a lot, too. It's fine. <laughs> I'm I'm ravenous. I uh, uh, 
Well, this has been a fun secret news of the century, a micro news of the century, but yeah. I'm positive that you can just take a scalpel and excise this whole first yeah, yeah. part of our conversation and send it to Alex because I think he would get a kick out of it. Hi, Alex. See you tomorrow. Or maybe it's uh, yesterday. But hey, looks like I can time travel too, motherfucker. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've had coffee. For the first time, and I can't remember how long, we actually got to the end of the show notes in a single recording session. Yes! Yes, we did it! There we was... got one! <laughs> we did not have technical issues. We did not run out of time. I mean, we were, we've gotten right up to the edge here, so I should let you go. But, I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. Full circle. <laughs> like, I'm suddenly not sure, and so therefore I'm immediately putting in a replacement. Future piece Greg? <laughs> Shall we uh, um, do a re, uh, read of you saying, well, anyway, we said it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, actually, hold on a second. Now I have to check to, because I'm not sure now. Um, God damn it, I should have been, like, rereading the chapters, but no, I had to be busy reading the newest v fucking... Ch uh, hold on. There's three! Uh, <laughs> uh, three to four new century stories that we are like, putting our mind towards this week alone. We're all over the shop. We're going back and forward in time and space. As mentioned earlier during our outro... We had to stop a couple of times during our Skype call, and I had been riffing into the silence, but none of what I said was really exciting enough to keep, so I just cut it out. Toby's response when getting back to the microphone, however... Heard you talking shit. <laughs> Not shit about you, just just uh, just stuff about uh, through the window in general. You 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 you're the one that does comedy stuff when I go off the uh, headset to, to go and do things. It's very charitable of you to call it comedy. <laughs> I mean, I always enjoy it when I when I when I get to the editing desk and find out what you were saying behind my back, so to speak. Uh, your 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 musical stylings and all that sort of thing. Uh, uh, Anabaptism is a schism with. Uh, Protestantism? I, I actually don't know how you pronounce it. Protestants. Protestant. Fuck it. I'm going to have to edit this incorrectly. I don't. I'm suddenly blanking on how you pronounce it. Um, my point is, is that. Weird wood. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't think that I realized back when I first listened to Arlington that Sattler and Butler... Wow, okay, I just replaced the D and the T on that. Uh, that's fairly amusing. 